let's say, again, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you're tracking the people that go in your house. So you need to chip everybody that comes in your house and put up sensors at the entrances and exits, So and including your windows in case they try to go out a window, so that anytime they leave or enter, you have a log of it, and then your tool system then knows, hey, Bob was here and a wrench is missing now. Clearly it was Bob. So Jeff, when we did our AMA episode, mm-hmm. one of the questions that came up was, like, what was a, a project that you would sponsor or what is a software project that, uh, that you would like to exist? And we each, we each mentioned one, but I was thinking about this the other day. And the fact is there's more than one for me. And I assume there's more than one for you. There's quite so a I few, thought, yeah. Why don't we just go ahead and dig into that and maybe these exist and we just don't know about it. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then people can let us know. Mm-hmm. And if these don't exist, then maybe some rich person that's, that's listening to this podcast, since so many rich people listen to this podcast, uh, they wouldn't mind funding the development of one of them. I mean, you know, why not? Right. Yes. Sure. Yeah, it could happen. We'd love to take, a, take your money and put it towards effort. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not we, because I think some of these, at least some of the ones that I have, you know, on my list are... I think outside my skill level, so oh, you know somebody point, else yeah. can can take the money and develop it. So we would we would be uh, middlemen at that point, just connecting the interested party with the resources that could do sure, it. Sure, sure, that would effectively. Uh, so I figured yeah. I'd, I'd start off Go ahead. with yeah. a a very classic me problem, which is a super edge case situation that doesn't really apply to normal people, but is of really course. freaking annoying and shouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. And that is remote desktop slash VNC. Now, I know what you're going to say. Hold on. Those exist. There's like a billion of them. There's all sorts of options. Yes. However, they all focus on minimizing bandwidth as much as possible. Right. Whereas okay. what I want is to maximize bandwidth as much as possible. You, what, what? Yes. Right. Maximize. maximize. Is, this a, is this a testing tool? No. No, this is not a testing tool. This is just a, I want as low latency and as fast as possible. And I don't care that it's going to cost me in the bandwidth department. So, so let me explain. Okay. As you know, I have some ridiculous gear in my house. Mm-hmm. One of the things on that you list do. that I have that I use is a lot of InfiniBand gear. So yes, I live in a Victorian house that was built in 1883, but the inside of my house is wired for 40 gigabit E. So, you know. <laughs> that is so JT. Yeah, it is. That is so it perfectly is. JT in a nutshell. So I was trying to do uh, remote desktop on a system. And of course, I was running into the problem of latency because obviously most RDP and VNC clients are trying to get it down as small as possible as bandwidth usage, which again, if you're on a gigabit or you're doing it over the internet, that makes total sense. That is not my situation. I have a 40 giggy pipe between two machines. You can use all of it. All of it is available to you. Like, and I did the math. So a 4K bitmap, okay, a four, BMP, if you took a screenshot, hypothetically, would be 32 megabytes. So 
Now, 60 of those are a second. 256 megabit. So I could just literally do 4K bitmaps more than 60 times a second across the wire and still have plenty of bandwidth available. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, and a 4K yeah, 60 actually. HDMI cable is rated at 18 gigabits. Now, yeah, that's using the proprietary HDMI stuff, but the fact is, it works. There's no reason that it shouldn't work in this aspect. Somebody just needs to make it happen. And I mean, again, that's 4K 60 over an 18 gigabit. I'm doubling, more than doubling that. So even if we took that 18 and doubled it, that would then be 36 gigabit. I would still have four gigabit left for mouse and keyboard, which I don't think those are going to take that much bandwidth. <laughs> well, don't forget about your audio stream too. Super high yeah, resolution yeah. audio is still going to be something like what's the macro saying? Five, twelve uh, kilobits. Yeah, it still wouldn't be enough. Sample size times whatever number of bits. So, so yeah, it would not I've be much. got all the bandwidth available, and hypothetically, if that wasn't enough. I could go get 100 gigabit or 200 gigabit cards because I know people that have them that I could get some off of. You know people. So, but I, I don't need 100 or 200 gigabit because I've got 40 and 40 should be more than enough. But nothing, it should nothing be. that at least that I've found actually addresses like this type of use case. And I've asked tons of people about, you know, w- what would they recommend? And well, surely studios have something like this. The, well, the recommendations you know, I get are like, oh, you could use Splashtop or, oh, you could use Parsec. And I'm going to say full stop. Anyone who wants to recommend a software as a service option for me can just, no, stop. There, there is no reason for that. I should not have to pay a company to access a machine that is sitting three feet away from me. That's not going to happen. And it, there, there, no one needs to be in the mix here. It's literally point to point, two computers Let's make this happen. I, I don't know enough, though, about how X works on Linux, the, the very fundamentals, and no idea how the Windows desktop works. Um, so I'm not the guy to really do that. But again, I mean, you could just do bitmaps. Hmm. I mean, that would eat the hell out of your CPU constantly yes, doing that. Would. But bandwidth-wise, it's not a problem. Right. And clearly... I think there's other ways to do that. Well, you would be not taking advantage of the accelerated instructions in the uh, Intel or AMD 64 ISA. So I think you'd be spending more effort for no or even negative gain. I guess of loss, actually. So I think uh, using... Heck, I mean, I think almost all the motherboards out there these days have some kind of video driver on there. And that video driver has some kind of adjunct something for MPEG-2 compression decompression. Because it's used everywhere. So it seems that would be the logical thing. Shove it towards that. Uncompressed MPEG-2. Just send it across like that. Yeah, you've got a big fat pipe. Just shove everything down it. Yeah. So I, I get what you're saying. It's a hyperbole to say uh, the, the bitmaps. I, I do understand what you're saying. Yeah, that's me going for the stupidest possible method to show I've got the bandwidth. If I can do the right. stupidest yeah. thing ever multiple times and not run out of bandwidth, surely using it at proper transfer encoding this should not be an issue yeah i guess not i I just still think about what technology do you think if you're sitting in let's just pick a pick a news service uh, one of the 24 hours news service they are constantly doing back and forth video and remote stuff right 
And they need the high fidelity there because they're going to be going on to HD broadcasts. So they need reasonably high quality and they need no jitter and they need a whole bunch of things. So you'd think whatever high quality solution they're using, something like that. I'm guessing they're but using satellites. Appliances. Okay. And I don't have a satellite because, you know, um, I'm going to a computer that's three feet away from me. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're stuck on the network there. I'm talking about the thing that makes the packets that go on the network that would go up the satellite and back down again. Unless you're telling me it's sending an actual analog signal. Well, I guess analog's not the right word. Is it just... I don't know enough about how that protocol would work. Right. But it seems like they're doing something or some things. They've got some hardware, appliances, software, something that is a very high-quality capture of the video there at the site and then does something to it and then pipes it over the satellite network back home where on the other end they receive it they undo something to it and then it's a high quality stream again yeah but the thing that they deal with is latency because of the transmission they're going to have seconds of latency you don't want seconds of latency if you're doing you know remote desktop Mm. you need to get down to as low latency as possible because when you move the mouse you need it to move not well, that's de- move that's the mouse down and then delay. going up and down, isn't it? That's that's the delay would be because it's going up to the stratosphere and back down again. Yeah, or if, just going through regular wires in the studio to then going out to people's TVs and all that. Like there's latency built into the system. They don't care about hmm. bandwidth because, I mean, it, I, I don't really think bandwidth is their issue. Right. Okay. Um, hmm. They can you can do high bandwidth, high latency. That's easy. Everybody knows how to do that practically. That's the internet. But to do high bandwidth, low latency seems to be where it isn't getting focused because everybody's trying to do the low bandwidth, low latency. For instance, like Parse Second Splashtop, like that's their whole marketing shtick is we try to get you the lowest latency possible. Now, it is local. The transfer itself is actually local. You just have to connect out to their service that says, yes, he's allowed to do this because he paid his bill this month. Okay. Which is hmm. what I'm not going to do because screw you. Right. I'm not paying you to connect to a machine that's three feet away from me. Right. I, I really despise that too. Yeah. There's a whole software as a service rant we should go into one of these days. Well, we might, we might touch on it today because uh, several of the things on my list are all related. So, uh, so it seems like this is a solved problem, but not in an open way. seems like it. it I, all the pieces are there. Problem. Just no one has put all the pieces together yet. Okay. If someone is looking for a project, Talk to JT. This seems like an interesting. And of course, I you, will. I will buy somebody. You need to go get Infiniband. I, I will buy yeah. somebody as many boxes of Oreo cookies as it takes. <laughs> okay, let's make this happen. What if they want thin mints? Uh, if they want thin mints, you're doomed. Uh, if they want thin mints, they can find another project to work on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So we're discriminatory against certain cookies. Got it. Well, it's not a protected class. We can discriminate all we like. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay, so what's something on your list? So the one that immediately popped into my mind. For tracking your finances, there are a bunch of softwares out there. Some of them are open, some are not. And the open source ones have varying degrees of quality and robustness. A lot of modern softwares, they're trying to make it easy for the user by... They speak a a language, or they, they understand this bank's interface. They understand... How to log in, grab uh, the CV, CSV, all your financial data, and then update its own internal record, right? Well, the problem I have with all those services is they, they send your data through their servers. So what I would like is something like 
a cloud, a self-hosted cloud option for these kind of things. I never want my financial data to ever cross a boundary into one of their servers. It should be from my, my system or the local server in the house reaches out to my financial institution, grabs the records, pulls it down, and then does all the things like what the fancy software as a service or finance as a service softwares do. I don't want anyone else to have that data. And it's, all the pieces are there. I, I even, I haven't looked at uh, Mint in a while. I think there was, I was reading some of they were going to start heading in that direction. And it, really, it's a matter of just getting down and, and how many accounts do I have? What's the format? I don't think it would be hard to do. I just haven't set up to do it yet. Like Mint is, is an app. It's a desktop app. You, you start it up. It's like a classic thing. That doesn't help me when I'm on my phone and I want to put a receipt in real quick and a value that I just, I just paid this much at the grocery store. I want to capture it before I leave. I don't know of a self-hosted open solution that does that yet. And I would really like something like that because I find myself wanting that all the time. I've resisted using one of the other services because I just I can't. I know what happens to data once you let go of it. Lose all control of it, pretty much. And it goes through their servers and they'll claim all day, up, down, left, and right, that oh, they'll keep your private, David private. I don't trust it. We've seen too many instances of companies that said, oh, we'll keep your data private. Uh, we actually ended up sharing it with this third-party affiliate of ours, and we don't know what they did with it. That's happened numerous times. And it's happened so commonly that the, almost, the average user has just given up trying to take care of it, frankly. They just accept this is the normal. I, you know, I use this service. It's great. The future is now, but I have to give up all my data. And I just i am unwilling to do that. So that's top of my list. And I imagine there's something out there a listener would be able to suggest to us that would fill that role for me or get me 80% of the way there. And I can do legwork and get a little, write a little Python script or something that grabs the data from pick a bank of choice. And then the format should be the same every time. So you look into where, what's the gateway to get it from. I have the credentials for my login and just do a little bit of data manipulation and sleuthing and then convert it into a format that the service wants. Well, I mean, if you wanted to go about a really janky way of doing it, if you're just trying to download CSVs from your bank, you could use Selenium and just log into your bank and download the CSV and then log back out again. I mean, you could have a script that would yeah. do that. It, that would be very janky. It is janky, would, but it would I get you. I would have you. to have Selenium on my system. That's a major downfall. Well, you know. I don't, I don't much care for that tool, but I, it has a role. I understand its role. I just don't like it. But yeah, I see where you're going with that. I, I think that's not the big problem as I see it. I know that these portals exist because I know Quicken and a couple other services let you just, or you need a budget or something like that. I know they almost all of them have facilities where, well, you don't have to put your receipts in. We'll just go grab from the bank. Like TurboTax does this too. And the only way that works is if all of these major banking institutions and a lot of the minor ones, they're all, I don't I want to say they're speaking a common protocol or a common data format, but they're publishing it somewhere that Automata can get to it. Scripts and bots and other well, things I think that can it's get the to bank, that data. I think the banks have their own API and those companies just yeah. know and have written the back end of their stuff to just connect to the API and to pull whatever. So there's no reason right. you couldn't you know, do the same thing, assuming that you could actually get API access and exactly. an account with the bank, which the bank might give you if you ever asked. Now, obviously, your local branch is going to have no clue about that. So you'd have to go through the, you know, the corporate system and getting to yep. the right person might be a problem. But yeah, I mean, it, I'm sure the stuff is there. 
I'm sure it is too. I'm sure it could be gotten and I'm sure it could be aggregated. And I know I can, once I get the data in a, in an automated way, I can manipulate it and do what I need to, to import it into something else. That would not be hard to do. But that doesn't, that doesn't solve the, uh, the web portal stuff. And it's a deal breaker for me to not be self-hosted period. End of story. It must be Mm self-hosted. I have to have direct control over everything. I will not use a software as a service for anything financial like that. Just, I can't bring myself to do it. Yeah, along the same lines is I've wanted, you know, a, something that I could have that run on my phone for like, like you said, you know, taking a photo of a receipt that, you know, would then convert that into you know, JSON text. I don't care. Something that then I can then use back on my computer without having to have one of these services do all that stuff for you. You know, OCR is, is out there. Just nobody's really made an application that does that thing. I disagree with you. I think that that has been done. Okay. But almost always it's adjunct to like concur is a solution that my, my employer uses for expensing things. And you put the concur app on your phone. And then every time you get a receipt, you just take a snapshot and it does that for you. And if it can read the receipt at all, and it does a really good job of it. Is it open source? Oh, absolutely not. No. Well then, then that's not an, uh, an example of what I'm talking about. I, I have seen open source tools that do that. Okay. That one that one thing in particular. So you could take that and put that together with something else. Okay. Because it's you know right. At the end of the day, it is OCR and uh probably some big database cataloging. Okay. This company, when when you go there and buy something from them, the receipt looks like this. So if I if I have this fingerprint and I think it's this, this looks like this, and that means I need to go to this field and that field to get my data or whatever. So there is quite a lot of First of all, be good with the OCR, but I think it's now that technology is 30 years old, so it's pretty robust. And then given you have good OCR, then you have to be able to figure out it's not enough to just, oh, there's the letters, but yeah. make meeting from them. So you could train models on that. You could, uh, a lot of things you could do there. Yeah, I think nowadays the OCR is all done with an AI model because it's superior yeah, it's to superior. Yeah, to the other, which then brings us to my second thing. Oh, okay, go ahead. Which is... I want an open source VTT model to be able to use inside an application. What is a VTT model? Voice to text. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. There are plenty yeah. of VTT services out there, like Google, for instance, runs theirs. A lot of a lot of them exist, but again, it's all the service, and you have to have internet connectivity. Yep. There needs to be an open source one that exists that people can use and freely embed in whatever application they want to give whatever application VTT capability that doesn't need to be online Hmm. and use Google's APIs. Which for me, if this would ever exist, would actually open up that possibility for practically every open source program out there. There are some, looks like. There's some open projects. There are some VTT stuff that has existed for a while that is open, but it is not good. Okay. I have not found one. Now, I haven't looked in like a year. I have not found one that's an open source AI model. The ones right. that I have found were like the old style VTT stuff, like the way, um, was it Dragon Naturally Speaking used to work? And mm-hmm. some of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is nowhere near as precise as the, the open stuff or the AI stuff. So let's see here. Yeah, well, Mozilla's uh, speech to text. It's here talking exactly what you're saying. Production quality speech to text is currently the domain of a handful of companies that have heavily invested in research and development of these technologies. Blah, 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 blah. 
Um, to access proprietary STT services, newcomers need to pay in the range of one cent per utterance. Ooh, that adds up fast. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Yeah. To open up this area for development, Mozilla plans to open source its STT engine and models. Plans to. Mm. Mm. Yeah, plans to. Mm. This is on research.mozilla.org slash machine dash learning. So here we go. Mozilla Deep Speech. That's the name of this project. Because, I mean, if you look at it just from a accessibility point of view, this would be massively helpful for people with physical disabilities. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because at that point, you could actually have a decent voice-to-computer interaction so people could control a computer with their voice. Because right now, it's stupid janky if you try to actually do it. Because it's like certain commands that you have to say very clearly. There's... You, know, you have to train it for when this is said, then this is what you're going to do. But if, if this is a little bit different, then you're going to do this because it can't naturally pick apart the words as well. You know, actually, this brings to mind something that was not on my list, but something I talked with about another person. A Bible study I was in, a gentleman, he had garbled speech due to some injury he'd suffered a long time ago. Maybe stroke related or something. But he, I remember him talking... He has to concentrate very hard to get his mouth to make the words such that people can understand him. And he lamented how he could never use voice command anything because his voice was too ugly. And he was specifically requesting, do you think it'd be possible for us to try and make voice to speech, I'm sorry, voice to text for ugly voices? And I thought, well, probably. I would have no idea how to do that. But um, these days, with a trained model, I'm sure that most things could be done. Now, I see a big problem with that. You would have to train a model for one ugly voice. I don't think you could train. There's a 90 different ways, let's say, just picking a number out of a hat, 90 ways that a voice could be ugly and unrecognizable to an algorithm. So I guess he's looking for a tool that specifically is outside of two standard deviations of the norm on speech. And when you're training algorithms, you'd probably want to use the most common. Uh, well, maybe not, actually. I'm thinking about it. There's lots of, there's, um, now that I think about it, actually, there's a lot of nuance to this because you have different accents mm-hmm. and different modes of speaking. So if you're trying to make a generic algorithm that works for, say, all U.S. English speakers, there's, I don't know, 12, 16, 20 different... I don't, dialect is not the right word. What is the right word there? Okay, so you go to Louisiana and people speak a certain way, but North Louisiana and South Louisiana sound different, maybe. Uh, Jersey, North Jersey, South Jersey. All over the place, you got these different peculiar accents that your model would need to be able to handle. So maybe it could be done that we could make a voice recognition for ugly voices. Hmm. I'm going to follow that away for some later research. I mean, you could definitely do one for an individual's voice. That's not, that's right. not really hard to do at all. Um, right. Y- they would have to be willing to sit there and recite these things. Yeah. Enough to, to, to train it with, give it enough data to train. Well, if you follow the... Um, I looked into this a couple years ago, and I forget the name of it now, but the, uh, the stuff that NVIDIA uses, and I think Google used it as well. Oh, um, they, uh, used to the there's, there's one book that they used, and like the original AI voice models were based on one woman's reading of this book, because then you can match the actual vocals to the text line by line, and then you just feed that right. into the model. So you would basically have to say, hey, dude, Record yourself reading this book and then, you know, cut the audio apart so that sentence by sentence, the audio matches the text 
And then you could just feed that in and let it run for probably a couple of weeks, depending on how strong your computer is. And then boop, now you have a model that would work right. for him. So it seems kind of like if we were to actually do this, we would want to build a framework with the ability to plug in different models. And you would have, it sounds like it would be a medical thing for people that need voices recognition, but their voice is garbled. So, because then that, that opens up the domain for a lot of funding, because this would not be cheap. You'd have to all the training. You'd have to the, the time for someone to cut the audio up and to match it up with the text and everything. And it would just, it would take a lot of effort to do. It sounds very possible, but making something that could be done for, I don't know, 30 different individuals that all have different malformations in their speech patterns, that's a little less trivial. And you'd have to train 30 models, probably. Or maybe you train one model that's kind of got elements of all of them, and then you can you specialize a model in one direction for this gentleman and so you can then starting from the same base, go in a different direction for another person. Yeah, you can do retraining on models. I started to look into it a couple of years ago for image based AIs, but I never got really far. Hmm, okay. Something to think about. I'm going to let that kind of marinate for a while. Well, I guess that was my second thing. You want to go next one for you? Uh, sure. So I, in our episode before, I talked about how I wanted a uh, SE Linux tray application that would work in any desktop. So, you know, you have a little thing down there, you click it and, you know, you can see, okay, what is accessing all the things like hardware, what programs are using what hardware? So you could mouse over, it would pop out uh, or, you know, the inverse where you could go by software and see what is all the soft, what access does this software have to all the things? So you could monitor and then, you know, you could maybe add rules there because obviously writing system D or, um, SE Linux rules is sometimes a pain in the butt. Can be. Uh, so it'd be really great if there was an easier way to just be like, yeah, like this program right here, no, should not have access to the network. Bye. You know, so you could like uh, permit and deny and stuff like that. Uh, along that same line, I would actually like a similar tray application for System D, where hmm. again, a little okay. applet, you right click on it, it pops up, and you would have a list of all of your services and their state. And then okay. you, let's say right click on or mouse over one of them and then it would pop out and then you would have all your options that, that you could do for that. So you could stop, so this restart, would be like whatever. The, the list and the list units command, basically the result from mm -hmm. that, but in a graphical applet form. Okay, yeah. yeah, I can see that. And if you click on one, then it goes and zooms in. Yeah, and, so basically if you just did, huh. um, you know, the main one would just be, you know, service status to just show all of them. And then when you then punch in on one, it shows you all the details of it. And you can then choose what you want to do with it. It wouldn't be hard to do. I, I mean, I could do it very, very ugly by just, you know, scraping shell with QT. Right. But there's obviously a cleaner way to do this because I'm sure System D has its own API that you could use to get all that information yeah. cleanly. I don't know what it is. I'm sure it's documented somewhere. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I, I, there's lots of, mm, wow, that has a lot of possibilities, actually. I think about it. I could see doing a lot with that. I could see. Hmm. Let me marinate on that one because that sounds pretty interesting too. I would actually would use that. Mm -hmm. I, I think I would be less upset about System D. Although, let's be honest, I've gotten over most of everything I've been upset about System D. I can't change it. It's in my life. So I just make do. So this would help me overcome some of the things that I don't like about it. And I'm also just yeah, thinking that about. Would actually be really useful. I'm just also thinking about just simple ease of use. There's times when, like, you know, if I have to do at work a security scan of something, and I'm like, uh, you know, let me fire up Nessus. 
So, you know, open up my browser, put in the thing, and it's like, I'm not responding. Oh, crap, is the, is the service even running? Right. So it's, yep. it would be really nice if I could just go down into the tray and go, is the service running? Oh, it's not. Okay, start it. Like, yes, it's not hard to open up a shell and then run the status command and then start the surf. Like, it's not difficult, but it's like... No, it's not. I could do that same thing in three clicks, two clicks. So that sparked an idea of mine. I would really like... Uh, I don't know how you would do this. Some kind of context-aware system, something that if, if a a device tried to reach a service on a port where nothing was listening, then the system would make a best effort to try and find what was supposed to be listening and then suggest to you, hey, you tried to contact Nessus on 3820 or whatever. It's not running. Would you like us to start it? Like to be proactive. I don't know how. There would be too much context, I think, for that to work. But Well, you would have to have something monitoring everything in real time. Yeah. Which it'd have to be that would be an amazing rootkit. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that such things do exist, but uh, not for beneficial purposes, we'll say. Yeah. Huh. That's a good one. Now, I was thinking also, what would be really helpful is if I could tell the applet to monitor a different server. Because I know that you can control another systemd daemon on a different mm-hmm. server if you have the right to have it set up. So there's no reason you couldn't tell your applet to, instead of showing mine, show me DB2 or whatever. Show me what's happening on that system. And you could maybe you'd have a little drop down. You could tell it pre-populate with the servers and you switch over to that one, then it goes and fetches the most modern data, and then it starts watching it from then mm-hmm. on. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it could be set up that if a service, if let's say a service stops or whatever, that it would, you know, it would blink or whatever. And then you would something, mouse over and you right. would see, oh, something happened with the service. Let me see what it is. Um, if there's an error, if a server crashes, that you would get notification instead of just going, "Huh, something's acting up weird." Let me let me try to figure it out. Like you would know, oh, there there it is. There's there's a a big red box just came up because the right. service crashed. Right. Like it's it's yeah. it's there's desktop. A, there's a lot of potential. It's there. desktop centric, but you know we, we don't have those things on the desktop except dropping to a shell and then doing it the way you would do it on a server, and it just seems right. like. Why don't we have a graphical way to do this on a desktop? I mean, our desktop you know, environments can reinvent themselves and do all this other stuff. Like, why, why can't we get something that's actually useful instead of hypothetically reinventing the screenshot utility 17 times? Hmm. Oh, well, I think there's, there's a lot of promise there. So another idea I had, I know that Spice, it's a... Electrical components modeling software. It's been around for 35, 40 years. It's very old software. It's open source, been open source almost. I think it's open source that kind of predates the term open source, frankly. Is that like EagleCAD? Probably EagleCAD uses Spice, but okay. it's the simulation. So you like you put in a, a voltage source and then a resistor and then a, you measure the current across the resistor, that kind of stuff. That's Spice. Simple stuff. So you declare nodes, right? And then you connect them. You say this component. I have this component and it's connected to these two nodes on either side. Or let's say it's a transistor where it's got three nodes or three attachments. So the transistor model and then the one, two, three, the three nodes that it's attached to. You just give numbers or labels to the nodes, whatever you want. I know such things exist. And there's lots of software and stuff out there for schematic tracking. I don't know if this is a thing. If I were to give a very high resolution images of the front and back of a board, put it, figure out the schematic for me. Probably not, but in some cases, yeah. Well, I mean, if it's a single-layer board, sure. Right. I know it can't do the vias, and it's especially if you got, like, ground or voltage points in the middle, it can't see those connections. 
But if it gets me 75% of the way towards a, a finished schematic with lots of empty areas that I know I can go attack, that's a heck of a lot less intimidating. Like, oh no, I have to go build this whole schematic myself. Because that's really frustrating. Now, are, it makes on. me not want to do the, the exercise. Are you also talking about a bare board or a board with components on it? Boards with components on it. Well, that's going to be a lot more difficult. I know. But so in general, boards, so through hole components, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. like guitar amps is what I'm thinking about. So okay. I give, I take the board of a guitar amp out and usually all the surf, uh, all the through hole components are on one side. And so on the other, if you flip it over, you'll see lots of traces. So I can take a high resolution image of the back where all the traces are and then flip it over. And then I line them up and try and make it so it's the exact same image, the exact, you know, it can say, I saw a hole here and that component's there. So then let's see if we can identify what that component is. Oh, that looks like a capacitor, a radio capacitor. Okay. I don't know what size capacitor it is, but there's a capacitor there. And then the other side looks like it maps to that hole. So I, I, there's an awful lot of context in there, but boy, would that really speed up when you're trying to trace schematics. It would also probably make lots of people that were producing electronics not happy because it would make it trivial for you to reverse engineer their stuff. I mean, it's already trivial with air quotes around it to reverse engineer something. If you just have enough time and you go through and trace points and use your little multimeter with the, the sound mode, like this, this is a short to that. So, oh, this, this trace connects to that trace. So these two components are joined. You can go through and figure the circuit out that way. And that's classically what we do. Sure. It would be nice if there was a tool that accelerated that form. Well, I mean, if you contact uh, China, I'm sure there's a couple billion dollars in uh, funding that they would love to be able to give to somebody who could create a program where you can just take a picture of a motherboard and it spits out on the other end the schematic. They may already have that. I mean, image-wise, it wouldn't be too difficult because, I mean, you could train a model to be able to identify you know, resistors by colored lines and maybe even get close on capacitors based on color and size. You would probably still need to fill in some details, but... I think the biggest problem would be once you get to SMT. Yeah, so the SMT, I think it's both easier and a lot harder because, first of all, you need very, very fine resolution images. That's not a problem. We can get that, right? So given a very, very high resolution image, just so you can determine. What I see on some boards is that all the resistors are one color and all the capacitors are another color. And maybe they have different, different colors for different sizes, too. There's usually just tiny little numbers on there, so you can figure out that's a resistor... Because it's blue colored and it says 100 on there or whatever. So I think just usually on, on surface mount boards, the sheer number of components is quite a bit higher than on physical through holes, that kind of thing. So it'd be, you could readily determine there's a thing here and it's connected to that thing and that thing. But what the thing is, the first thing I don't actually know. So you'd have to go back and fill more information in yourself, but it would help with the wiring up together. Yeah. So it's not really as big a deal for me because I'm thinking guitar amps, mm -hmm. the frequency of interest is in the audio range. And so a lot of the components, like the capacitors have to be larger and the resistors are usually like 10 to 15 K. So you, it's really very difficult to get like an input impedance would be like one meg. Very difficult to get that high of a resistance or an impedance in those little tiny surface mountain resistors. You just, can't effectively do it. So most of the stuff I've got is through hole. Yeah, any through hole stuff shouldn't be too difficult. And again, like a lot of the resistors would be able to be figured out just by their color banding. Right. Unless they uh 
the manufacturer put on the the black goo of secrecy so that you uh you can't see the black goo of secrecy yeah let's see there's a guitar pedal kind of a famous guitar pedal called the clon Centaur, where they tried that they they put this really really sticky black goop like not just your normal average conformal coating like really nasty stuff on there and someone still figured out through careful analysis there's like a limited number of these things in existence so you don't want to just willy-nilly try oh that didn't work i broke the board let's go to the next one because you can't get another one someone figured it out they figured out how to get the black goop off and then they traced the circuit and it was it was instructional so they all attempts to obscure what your board is doing will end in failure well, anytime you make a product that you're going to sell to somebody else that could look at the board, they can figure out what it's doing with enough time Up to what the chips are yeah, doing with, with enough time and money, because I know some of the systems that I've pulled apart recently, um, the, the black goo that they use now on ICs has, has gotten better. It's, oh, oh, yeah, it's it? not just like goo. It's like almost the same type of uh, stuff that the actual chip is made of itself. Ooh, so like yeah. if you even if you tried to scrape it off like it won't scrape off and if you sand down you're never going to be able to get to the actual marking on the chip itself so at that right, point take the markings you're like okay mm. i need to you know flip the chip drill out a little then dissolve the stuff so i can actually get to the actual ic itself to then try to right. and at that point it's like oh, okay now and now you're really getting into the weeds to try to figure out what it is mm-hmm. no it's it's far easier at that point to do some espionage, we'll say, to try and figure out products that this company has produced in the past, what general producers or what suppliers have they used for these kind of large chips or whatever, and work your way back and kind of shotgun. We know there's you know 19 manufacturers of this particular kind of microchip that does roughly this thing, or DSPs or whatever, and just try and find something that looks right. Now, honestly, it'd be, I think it'd be faster than trying, well, not faster. Either either has a chance of failure, frankly. If you're trying to get the black goop off or you're trying to guess by going forward. There's people have been exhaustively cataloging electrical components for 40 years or more. And especially when the internet showed up, they started banding together and and collecting, putting their collections together. And so there's hubs of penouts of of chips that are long dead, but you might still find it on your 25-year-old radio or something and so you can go look it up the the pen out of that chip in that year it's pretty incredible what the internet has some of those sites have have bit right off the internet unfortunately and there's not there's not really a lot you can do if it's an internet archive but it's it's like a database of parts you can't really effectively store that unless someone deliberately stored that data so but there's it's pretty incredible what people have collected and what someone who's really dedicated, who really wants to learn what this thing is doing, you can learn how it works. You can figure it out. You can pick it apart. And then once you've got the circuit, you can learn a lot from it. Maybe not a lot. Learn some things from it. Like in particular, this, this Klon Sensor pedal, what they were doing, for any of the electrical people out there, what they had done special was they had taken a 9-volt input and they ran it through a little chip that basically it converted the 9 to a negative 9. I'm not quite sure how it did it. And then it charge pumped it up to 18. So it actually had 27 volts of uh, difference total. And then it was using that to run an op-amp super clean. It's a clean boost pedal. That was actually a really good idea. I think the chip was designed to either give you like double your voltage or make it negative, which, whatever. But they used both features at once. 
kind of incredible. There's a good write-up on it. Anybody who's interested in that, you can send me messages and I will talk your ear off about all kind of stuff like that. So anyway, your turn. Okay, so this one's an easy one. Uh, I tried to do it myself, but there was one spot I, I failed at because I couldn't figure it out in QT. Um, and that was a simple desktop wallpaper creator. Now, let me let me explain what I'm talking about here. Because I, I there are things which will do, like, you know, you put in an image and it makes the shape for you. What I was looking for is, you know, an application you start up and you can choose what size you want it to output. And then you load in whatever image. And then you can zoom in to the image and then position it by dragging. Where all the ones I've seen do it the opposite way. Where it's like, hmm. you have the whole image and then you have to crop, like, you crop in what you want. Um, the problem is that sometimes... Like you need to do both at the same time, or you need to zoom and crop. And the the ones that okay. I have found, it's one or the other. And like you could do that in GIMP, where you take the image, you crop it to whatever the aspect ratio is, and then you shrink it down. That's kind of a pain in the butt. Right. And the resize applet on um, in GIMP, of course, is super tiny, mm. and you only get this <laughs> minuscule preview. Like, no, I need to see right. the whole image. Like, take up my screen. But no, you you have this like hundred by two hundred graphical representation of where you know the crop is going to be when you're doing a res a canvas resize which isn't oh. helpful well so the tool that i used on os 10 actually does that it's not open source it's called pixelmator but it's i don't remember having that problem like you you just define an arbitrary box and then you can convert that into a crop box if you want so so the windows photo tool does this as well you can open up any image okay you click on the like the crop thing, and there's a little button that you click, and it's a drop-down menu, and you choose like what um, aspect ratio you want. Okay. And then you can zoom in and out with the scroll wheel, hmm. and then reposition it. So if you want, you know, ninety percent of the photo in whatever the aspect ratio is, sixteen by nine, let's say. Okay, but let's say you just want to crop into like the bottom twenty-five, you know, bottom corner. So you want to use twenty-five percent of the image, but expand it out to ten eighty p or whatever. You can do right. that as well. You just zoom in a bunch and then position it how you want, and you, then you click save. I have never found a utility that does this on Linux, and I don't, I don't know why because it shouldn't be difficult. As I said, I no, I it was, seems it seems very straightforward. I was able to get everything except for the uh, I could get the scroll to zoom to work, but then when I went to save, I couldn't figure out how to figure out the the corner points of the actual pixels so that it could then figure out how to turn that into its own image. Okay. Somebody better with uh, graphics would be able to do it probably in no time at all, but I'm not that person. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. It, it seems, the way you're describing it, it seems like, yeah, of course this could be done. Why hasn't it already been done? I just, well, pretty hmm. much everything I've mentioned, the, uh, this should be easy. It's just right. nobody's done it yet, because apparently nobody wants right. Oreo cookies. <laughs> And all the things I've mentioned, well, okay, so the first one I mentioned is relatively easy, but the others are not. Here, let's go train a model for someone's very ugly voice that you can never use again. Throw away, you know, 15 man months of computation time on training the model just for the one guy. That's non-trivial. And certainly very expensive, too. But, uh, yeah, it seems like that should be, it surprises me that there's not already a component or a library or something. I guess a library wouldn't be the right thing. It'd have to be the graphic tool has chosen to do it that way. Because each of those operations are trivial. Crop. Trivial. 
crop to a certain size, you know, here's, here's a template. Now that's just crop with less options effectively. And then zoom. Yeah, it seems very straightforward to me. I'm surprised there's not something like that out there. Surely, surely some tool somewhere has it. Now I have a question in response for that. If you were to learn of a tool that did this exact thing, but it did other things not very well. So this was the only feature you would use it for. Would you choose to use for that? Uh, okay, so my question is, is it open source? Yes. Well, yes, because I would then clone it, rip all the stuff out I don't want, and then repackage it to do the one thing I want it to do. Okay, so basically, let's say it had 40 things it did. You just want the one, so you're just going to make the one. I want the, the, a little tool. I, I know one. this is going to okay. be crazy, Jeff. I want one utility to do one job and do it well. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. It does not really fly when you're talking about graphics things because there's a thousand things or whatever. Well, no, up. because there's numerous things that you need to do when you're graphic. Well, designing. this isn't for graphic design. Like, let's be clear. Okay, this is yeah, about making desktop wallpapers. You know, okay. if you look at screenshot utilities on Linux, they're all pretty simple and pretty basic and they don't do a ton of things. Like you're not really getting right. into doing pixel editing because, well, use a pixel editor for that. This is just capturing your screen. And yeah, you can crop in a little bit if you want to. But by and large, mm. it's doing one task. Yeah. Ooh, that reminds me of something I wanted a long time ago. Why oh, I say that? There's, I'm sure this is a self problem. Evernote used to do a thing where you'd have the Evernote app and you'd take your screenshot and it would automatically paste it up to your cloud account that you could and give you a link. Like, as long as you invoked it with a certain, with, with this method as opposed to the standard take a screenshot method, Evernote would do all the automated stuff and, and drop into your coffee buffer, buffer a URL shortened version that gets to that image just right there off the top. It was really great. There's other tools that I saw on OSIN that does it. I, I know there's tools like Snagit and things that do, do such on Windows. And I would have to guess there's some open source stuff. But what I wanted was to be able to host. There's a theme here. I want to self-host where the images are stored. I don't want it to be stored on Evernote servers. I don't want to be stored somewhere else. I don't want to go out to a third party photo whatever or, or image host or something or imger i don't i don't want my stuff there i want it on my server where i control it and then i dole out who can see it so an open source tool that lets you post your images to somewhere you control now i have seen some that post to dropbox which yes this is a cloud tool but technically it's all the files in there are under your direct control and you can put acls or whatever you want so that is a solution but not the solution i was looking for okay I remember when I was looking into this, I was like, well, okay, could I get a self-hosted Dropbox instance? And no, at the time, the answer was no, you can't. Because this is pretty much, we'd be giving you everything in order to do that. Okay, so my question for you is, because in these utilities, you obviously have the ability to save. Why would you just not save it to a network share you have access to? Well, that's a, that's a solution, yeah. The program would need to know it should go there. Well, I mean, if you can save but and you get a save dialog, it's going to then present you with the places that you could save it. No, it automatically saves it. Like if you use the facility I'm thinking about, it takes, it takes a screenshot, grabs it, doesn't do any manipulation to it at all. It just saves it and then immediately uploads it to this place where you can share it from using a URL, a web link. So, oh, okay. I've just, never used a screenshot automatic. utility that automatically saved it. I had to always choose oh. to save it. Okay. Or choose, like oh. on, on tel in, in Android, when you take a screenshot, you can mm -hmm. save it or you can just immediately share it. Like I can right. take a you screenshot can. and then immediately share it to my Google Drive. Yes, you can. So, but uh, 
this thing would be multi-component. It, it automatically does that. It automatically shares it, or that is the place it's storing that photo or that screenshot. And then it goes to the next step and say, all right, all the files that are stored in that location are accessible at this URL. We assigned this random ID to the image. So we're just going to smash the URL together with the ID.png or whatever. And then it puts that into your copy buffer. That's, I would like it to do all those things together. Again, nothing world shattering. It could definitely be done. I think with a couple weeks of effort or sitting down and just poking at it, I could probably come up with something. I was just hoping that something like that already exists because that would be very helpful. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I, I was, when we first started talking about this topic, I wasn't sure, like, are we going to be able to fill an episode with this? Oh, uh, yeah. Apparently so. We both have a lot of things. Yeah. So I've got one more, and this was yet another thing that I started a while back but then stopped because I realized, oh, I'm obviously not smart enough to do that. And it was uh, an odd kind of drive encryption method hmm. where you would you would need two drives mm-hmm. and they would be just raw formatted, so just bogus data written to the entire device. You would open a program. You would then choose the, the two dev devices. Now, the drives themselves would have to be the same size. Let's, let's make that okay. clear. So let's say you went out and bought two 240 gig or 250 gig uh, SSDs. So same size drives, preferably same manufacturer too. And then, you know, you run this utility. It loads the entire drive up with random data all the way through. Make sure, you know, the drive's good. And then what it does is you put in a key, you know, that you would type in. With that key, it would then mount one drive as your data drive. Mount the second drive as a one-time pad that is... Hmm. You that is used with your key, so like so the random data that you put onto that drive now becomes a sequential one-time pad. Is the one-time pad, but only oh. the one-time pad with your key that is in your brain that you have to input when you mount the drive. Okay. So even yeah. if they have both drives, they have nothing. Hmm. So they have okay. to have the data drive, the not the the one-time pad drive, and the key out of your brain. Wait, so the entire drive is the one-time pad? Yes. And your key then works on, like, say, the sector level, is applied on the sector level to... Okay. So both drives at any time Hmm. are going to look like completely random data because they are completely random data. Okay. So this this brings to mind when you first started talking about the the two exactly sized drives. I always have a problem with that. And we this is the thing we run into when you're doing, like, mirrored drives, too. If you replace your drive with something from a different manufacturer, what guarantee do you have that they're exact same? You don't. So I think what I've, what I've well, gotten in the habit of doing is, is creating a single partition that is slightly smaller than the full size of the drive to account for the fact that if I have to replace it with a different manufacturer, I can still get the exact same size partition on that other drive and it won't matter. Right. Well, clearly this is not a situation where you're ever going to replace one of the drives. I would suppose not. Yes. So. Because if you do, you're dust. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to have to think about that one. That seems, there's some things about it that I don't understand, I think. I, I might have to talk with you more about it offline to really understand it. But that seems like a, I'll, I will say this, having two physical drives, well, no, I could take it back. Drives don't have to be big anymore. It could be two NVMe drives. Yeah. It could be two M.2 size. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a little add-in card that has these two drives and it does all that for you. I mean, hypothetically, mm-hmm. you could do it on, you know, if you bought two of the exact same USB stick, you could do it on that. 
Yeah, you can. Because when they're yeah. when they're just garbled data, you put them in, they're going to be detected as just raw. They're not going to be detected well, could, as having a format. You? Because it, uh, there's wear leveling and, and such on any kind of solid oh, state that, storage. Uh, would that that would affect things? Would it? Because it's moving stuff around. Yeah, that would. So it had to be spinners. Yeah. Something you direct right and you know this sector means this sector. No interchange in the middle. And that, mm, it had to be two spinners. This tells you how long ago I was working on this because I hadn't even guess, considered yes. that. It dates, it dates the idea considerably, yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Interesting, though. Yeah, but the idea being, obviously, if somebody were to get the drives, they're no good. Mm-hmm. And they don't even, they don't know which is the data drive and which is the one-time pad drive because they're both random data. You know that because it's in your head, when you start the utility, you then select which drive is which. Now, don't forget that, because if you do, you're hosed. But the drives on their own are no good. Mm. I, I see there could be some um, drives get misordered, because there's in some systems, it's not guaranteed that your drives will always come up in the same order. So Well, they should be, it. unless you're moving the drives around. They should be, but if you add a third drive, I've had this happen to me, but it's been granted. It's been a long time, like in early 2000s. I had a drive, a system with two discs in there, and I had the FS tab set up a certain way. So, disk, you know, SDA one goes here, and SDA SDB one goes there. Okay, well, right? there's your problem right there. You should be using UUIDs. Well, this is back in the early 2000s. We weren't using UUIDs well, for such things. Welcome to 2021, Jeff. I get it. I get it. So that's the solution. If now. you still have this problem, you have a problem. <laughs> Yeah, there are still people that have this problem because they experienced it at work recently. Not recently, a year ago. I was like, really? Are we still having this problem? Wow. It's 2020. We're still having this problem? It was just someone didn't really think ahead. It's like I say, I just set it up with UUIDs. It's trivial. Or, or the, one of the other solutions that, a little clunky, but I actually kind of liked is uh, UDEV permanent rules or persistent rules. <laughs> so the first time it sees the drive, it then writes it to the persistent rule. And so it'll always get up, always get back the same. This UID means that's SDA, right? Which is clunky, but it worked. You know, it, it solved a, a thorny problem without having to go and force the user to make any changes, mm-hmm. which users tend to like. But think about your one-time pad data drive or and source drive. Let me think about that for a little while. Hmm. So I have one more closing. Okay, and this one is on the edge between software and hardware. Okay, and I'm certain that such things already exist. I would like, so let's say I spent a long time to build my workshop and I have all the tools exactly where I want them to be, right? Let's say I could stick, um, I actually don't know how I would do this, like an RFID tag on each tool, roughly, like when you put it into its spot on the wall or when it hangs in its slot, the RFID tag would be close to the thing it's hanging on. And if that was a little reader, then I could know, okay, this tool has been pulled up. Or some something to know, actually, no, you could do it with simple magnet. Something to track, okay, this tool is assigned to this slot, it was picked up, and it hasn't been returned yet. So that's level one. Because when someone borrows my tools and doesn't return it, it drives me absolutely bonkers. But at the same time, sometimes I don't always know it. Like, yeah, the tools are in the garage, go grab something. And then I find out two weeks later that they grabbed my favorite pair of pliers and never returned them, and I didn't know. Okay, well, Jeff, here is the source of all your problems. Never let anyone borrow your tools. Oh, see, that's just not nice. If they don't have the right tools, they need to borrow mine. Then they can go to Harbor Freight and buy some cheap tools. Okay. 
That's fair. Like, yeah. So the the argument against buying your own tools is really difficult because when you can go get pliers for a dollar fifty or two dollars or something, yeah, and they're janky, but they work for especially for the one time you need them. They work good right. enough. They'll work for the one job that they need a pair of pliers for. They can yeah. go spend the, buy the Harbor Freight cheapies and and but leave then my good tools. Store it. Well, no, because so, it's a Harbor Freight cheapie. If they don't want it, they can get rid of it at that point. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Continuing the thought, pretending like there is actually a need for this, uh, I guess it'd be like a tool inventory system. We could broaden it out. I'm thinking in the respect to tools because this is the thing that aggravates me the most. But any kind of, you have multiple people physically pulling things out. Okay, but inventory systems collection. only work when people actually use them. Right. And I mean, like, okay, you have, so you have a, a wall with all the tools hanging on it. I mean, your inventory system, I could say, is your eyeballs. You look at the wall and you go, oh, that's missing. Right. Where did it go is the very okay. next question. But you're not going to be able to answer that unless someone is actively using whatever RFID system you put in place where they take something off and then they scan it and then they put in their name. You're not going to know who yeah, has you're right. it. No. Unless, unless you're going to create you know, some camera ID system that's going to you know, take no, pictures of people's faces and match it to a database with the NSA of who they are and where they live and what tool <laughs> they took in their hand so that you can oh, track does the NSA down. have an API now for that? I'm, wow, I'm pretty sure really, they do. I need to get involved with that API. That's great. How much per percent cents per transaction? I wonder. Uh, a, bill, a billion, probably. A That's billion right. cents per yeah. per API call. Right. So nothing trivial. But I, yeah, I, I understand this is a bit far fetched, and it's it's like hardware, but the software tracking and the inventory stuff. I just want to know who wandered off and absconded with my favorite pair of pliers. But see, again, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you're tracking the people that go in your house. So you need to chip everybody yeah. that comes in your house and put up sensors at the entrances and exits, So, and including your windows in case they try to go out a window, so that anytime <laughs> okay. they leave or enter, this is getting you ridiculous. have a log of it, and then your tool system then knows, hey, Bob was here, and a wrench is missing now. Clearly it was Bob. I have another idea. This is more expensive, but foolproof. I have my tools, and then I have the tools I let people borrow. Yeah, or you could just tell people to go buy cheap tools at Harbor Freight. Right. You know. That's probably, that's cheaper for me. Is, don't buy my tools. Just go, go, go to Harbor Freight and buy it. Now, if you don't live near Harbor Freight, first of all, that's terrible. Like, having a ready source of just barely good enough tools nearby is very liberating and allows you to do a lot of things that you didn't previously think you could do. Oh, I need this somewhat specialized tool one time well i'll go to hover freight nine dollars later i've got it it's really great but they ship stuff but uh hover freight opens a lot of possibilities and for all the people's complaints about quality that this it seems like the quality of hover freight tools has been going up so something is the needle's moving in the right direction anyway so I guess you've now thoroughly shot down that idea, so I just I'll stop there. I mean, no. If you wanna, if you wanna track people and and create an RFID system no, no, to track no. all your tools Here. and you know GPS tag them so you can know exactly where they are, so you can go retrieve them. I mean, I'm fine. Okay. You can do that. Uh, I just no. Clearly, you're not fine because you just keep adding hyperbole on top of hyperbole. I just here. think it's a little overboard when your eyeballs will tell you that a tool has been taken. But that's just me. <sighs> right. So not having this conversation with you anymore. So that idea is dead. We will just move on past it and be done with that. Because apparently I can't have a good faith discussion with JT about this particular idea. What are you idea. talking about? This is a good faith discussion. No, this is not a good faith oh, discussion. Oh, trust me. If this was not a good faith discussion, you'd know it. Oh, Lord. Okay. Anyway, that was the end of my list. And I think you said you had you were out of your list. 
Wow. I didn't realize how long we were talking about this. Yeah, that's, that's good enough. I'm sure. Well, I hope some of this is picked apart and listeners have ideas or suggestions for some of these things we've brought up. I'm, I'm sure the components out there exist for much of the things we're asking for. It's just they need to be put together and they would be put together in an open source way effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and like yeah. I said, I've got, I've got Oreo cookies for, for people that can make it happen. So, you know, reach out. So if someone is, doesn't like Oreo cookies or are allergic to them somehow, do you have an alternative? Well, I, you know, we can go with, with Chips Ahoy or, or something else. We can, we can make it. Just not Thin Mints. Not, not Thin Mints. I have standards. Not Thin Mints. Right. You have standards. Yes. You do. Apparently you don't like Girl Scouts. Who knew why? Yeah. JT doesn't like Girl Scouts. Everybody should know. No, it's not. It's not about that. It's I can't get thin oh, mints any time. Exactly of, no, I can't get thin mints any time of the year. There's only one time of the year you can get thin mints, and that's when the Girl Scouts are out. The rest I thought of the, that the Girl Scouts are like doing it year round these days. Are they? I see them out all the time. Like oh, I'm, I like I'm, never see the Girl Scouts. Hmm. Well, okay, you live in nowhere. No, I live somewhere. So that's why. <laughs> How do I put this gently, JT? You live very far out. Yes, that's and true. And not much goes on where you live. Therefore, but, I would not expect to see. Typical Girl Scout operations in your area, like what would be in a large urban area, which you do not live in. Right. But because I don't live in a large urban area, the Girl Scouts are going to have to work harder, which means I should see them more often at Walmart because it's not just easy for them to pop out and make lots of money. They have to work for it. Right. Yeah. So anyway, JT hates Girl Scouts. No, that is not true. That's what that's, that, I heard you say that or something very similar to that. No. That's the, the circuitous logic gets me there. You know, JT let, let's be also clear about one thing. I did not say that any other of the Girl Scout cookies were not allowed. Just Thin Mints. Okay. But Thin Mints are like the representative cookie for Girl Scout cookies. Well, maybe frankly. that's a problem. Maybe the Girl Scout cookies need better representation of tagalongs. All, all the other options. Gosh, tagalongs. Those do not last long in the house. Actually, that's not true. I, I, I did some kind of challenge where I was like, I got... Four boxes of tagalongs. I'm going to make these last four months. And I did it. I actually made them last four months. So that's, I think that's the first time I've ever been able to do that. But uh, I was able to prove to myself that, hey, I, could, I don't have to eat all of these. Mm -hmm. They're just ridiculously good. Anyway, enough about Girl Scouts. Listeners, if you have uh, responses to any of the ideas that we've had here, or you just like to tell us, boy, that's a really dumb idea, like specifically my inventory idea or any of JT's ideas, go ahead, share with us. We have multiple ways to contact us the telegram and matrix channels are active very active email seems to be a favored format for delivery of feedback there's also ways to contact us straight on fireside and twitter works too so reach out to us and let us know any of your thoughts or suggestions on how we might solve some of these problems jt any closing thoughts for you uh last closing thoughts are be excellent to each other and someone please write the software for me 